0: Our scripture reading this evening begins at Colossians chapter 2 and ends at chapter 3 verse 4. I think it's good to reread parts that we of Colossians that we have covered before just to remind us of these verses. So we'll begin at Verse 16 of chapter 2. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings, as these have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If, then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. So this evening we hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 3, 1 through 4. These verses function as a transition. Transition between what has been covered so far in chapters 1 and 2 and the exhortations, the commands that dominate the rest of the letter. These verses summarize much of what has come before, and they serve as an introduction to what comes next. And because much of what Paul writes in these verses has already been Said as he's worked his way through um, the first two chapters and as we have followed his thinking, because we have dealt with some of these themes in earlier sermons, my treatment of this text will be different than if this sermon were not part of an ongoing series. So I'll give a quick summary of certain parts that we've already covered and give more attention to things that are new in these verses. And I want to begin with introducing or reminding you of a set of terms that are often used to describe something very important about the biblical teaching of the Christian life. The truth expressed in these terms has been part of the teaching through much of what we have covered so far. The actual concepts are not new, but I've purposely not used these particular terms. I want to do so now because they are, they do have value in understanding this, the relationship between what God uh, what God has done in Jesus for our salvation and the commands that follow from that. So the terms that I am referring to are indicative and imperative. These are grammatical terms and that's one of the reasons I tend to avoid them. But their use in this context is helpful to understand the significance of the commands of the Bible as they are addressed to Christians. So an, an indicative statement is a statement of fact. And there's four of these in, in Colossians 3:1 through 4. So in verse 1, Paul writes, you have been raised with Christ. That's a fact. That's an indicative. In verse 1, Paul also affirms that Christ is above, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 3 is also an indicative statement. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a state of affairs. That's something Paul is saying, this is true of you. Verse 4 is the same. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So these are all indicative. They are statements of fact. And the ones that are important for the point that I'm making are the, are the statements that affirm things about Christians. Christians have been raised with Christ. Christians have died and their lives are hidden with Christ in God. Christ is the Christian's life. And when he appears, Christians will appear with him These are all indicative statements. They assert things to be true about all Christians because of God's grace to them in Jesus Christ. But then there are also imperative statements in this passage. Imperative statements are commands. So verse 1 says, seek the things that are above. And verse 2 says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So these are statements that tell us what to do. They're commands, and so imperatives. But what's important here is not so much that we understand these grammatical terms, but that we understand the relationship between indicatives and imperatives in the biblical teaching about salvation. So here's the point. Imperatives are based on indicatives. The commands are based on the facts of what are true of all believers because of their relationship to Christ. So the, the commands follow from the things that are true of Christians. So we see this in, in verse 1. If, the word if at the beginning of verse 1 has the sense of since. And I'll I'll use it, I'll read it that way just to make the connection more clear. Since then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So the reason that Christians are to seek the things that are above is that they have been raised with Christ. So the imperative is based on the indicative. The command to seek the things that are above is based on the fact that Christians have been raised with Christ. And so the sequence of the thought is, because of what God has done for you in Christ, follow these commands. We see the same connection in in verses 2 and 3. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For, because, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we are to set our minds on things that are above because of these facts, that as Christians, we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And you see the same connection further on past this passage, uh, but relating to it, referring back to it in verse 5 and 12. So verse 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Verse 12 says, put on then, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Etc. The imperatives of the Christian life are rooted in the indicatives of the Christian reality. Why is that important? It's important because it keeps together the miraculous change that God works in us through our relationship with Christ and the commands that He is telling us to obey. It's important because in the same breath, we hear the command to obey and the truth that says we are able to obey because of what is true of all believers united to, uh, uh, true of us as believers united to Christ. It's important because it means that we are not to think of God's commands in isolation from the change that he has worked in us through the gospel. And that in turn means that when we seek to obey those commands, we're not to look to ourselves, to our own inner strength, but rather to the reality that we have been raised with Christ and that we have died with him. And so the indicative slash imperative terminology helps us to understand that obedience flows from Our relationship with Christ. It embeds the whole obedience part of the Christian life in the life that we have in Christ. And thus we are called to live in a way that is possible and not impossible. The way that God calls us to live is not impossible because of what is true about us as people who are united to Christ. Christian life is a high calling, but it is possible and even inevitable for believers (coughs) because Christ is our life. We'll spend a little more time on the indicatives in the passage on things that are true of all Christians. But first, a little bit about this if clause. I mentioned that if in the very first uh, part of verse 1 really means since. And that particular construction is very common in the New Testament. The reason that the ESV continues to translate it if instead of since, the, the NIV translates it since, but the reason that EIV has left the if there has to do with the way these if clauses are often used. It's subtle, but it's understandable. If can raise a question that is meant to be answered with a yes. Let me illustrate. A high school teacher might say to a student, if you are an adult, act like an adult. And what that statement is really, That statement is really asking a question that expects a yes answer. Are you an adult? Yes. Then act like an adult. That's like what Paul is saying here, although his tone is more positive. Have you been raised with Christ? Yes. Then seek the things that are above. And using if rather than since draws the reader into The statement. But the most important thing for us to understand here is that Paul is not questioning whether his readers are Christians here. He's exhorting them on the basis of what is true of them as Christians. They have been raised with Christ. Later on in verse 3, you have died. Now, these concepts are not new for us. We've considered them in earlier sermons. Christians, because of their relationship with Christ, have died to their old way of life. They are living a new way of life. They died to sin. They are alive to God. A profound change has happened to them as a result of their relationship with Christ, and so they died to their old way of life, and they are living the life that Jesus Christ has shared with them. And that life is the same life that brought him from the dead. So Christians are dead in one way, dead to their old way of life, dead to sin. They're alive in another way. They've been raised with Christ. They are alive in Christ, alive to God. There are a few other indicatives that are new for us, so we'll spend a little more time on them. Verse 3 says of uh, believers, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul is saying that there is a hiddenness about the life of Christ that is in us. The contrast here is between what is true of Christians in the here and now and what will be true of Christians when Christ appears. To understand what Paul is saying, what he means by saying that the new life of Christ, Christians is hidden with Christ in God, we have to see the contrast that he's making in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear. That's the opposite of hidden. In with him in glory. So now our life is hidden with Christ in God, but when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. Now there is a sense, of course, in which the life of Christ in us must not be hidden. We are to let our light shine. We are to be witnesses before the world the life in Christ in us must show in tangible ways in our lives. That's a very important part of the Christian calling, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about here is the distinction between the relative hiddenness of the life of Christ in us now and the spectacular manifestation of it when we appear with Christ in glory. See, the life that The life of Christ that empowers us now is a glorious thing. And Paul speaks of it as a glorious thing. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, he had said, You were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's absolutely amazing and mind-boggling that the, the, the power that brought Christ from the dead brings us from spiritual death and we share Christ's life. That is a glorious thing. But there's a hiddenness about it in the here and now. We don't look any different from unbelievers. The world can plausibly deny that what we claim is even true. We're not recognized as being possessors of the glorious, eternal resurrection life of Christ. It takes faith to see it. It takes faith to see the glory of what it means to be a Christian. And the world considers us to be foolish and backwards and naive because we think something glorious has happened to us through our relationship with Christ. They do not believe that that is real. And they're able to contest our claim because it's not something that's obvious from the outside. So there's a hiddenness about the life of Christ in us at the present time. But that will not always be the case. The time coming when our life will no longer be hidden. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. When Christ is glorified, we will be glorified. The glory of what Christ, what God has been working in us through Christ will be unhidden. It will be revealed will be recognized as people who are the recipients of the glorious transforming power of Christ's life. Then the difference between spiritual death and spiritual life will be manifest. Paul speaks of this in Philippians 3.21 when he writes that when Christ appears, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So those are the indicatives that Paul mentions in these verses. You have been raised with Christ. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, then you will appear. You also appear with him in glory. These things are true of all believers. So we turn now to how Paul applies these wonderful facts that are true of all believers. He says, because these things are true of you, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is what Christians are to do on the basis of the wonderful facts that are true of them. Now these words can be and often have been interpreted in a way that leads to an unbiblical understanding of the Christian life. They've often been interpreted to mean that this earthly life is not important. All that matters is is what we think of as our religious life, as our spiritual life. And so then setting your mind on things above and not on things that are on the earth is understood to mean that all that really matters are things like our relationship with God in the life of contemplation and worship and prayer and Bible study and evangelism and good works, while the rest of life, the work of the life of family and work and enjoying the gifts of this earthly life, all those things are of much less significance as far as pleasing God is concerned. We shouldn't think about them all that much. A more extreme Form of this way of thinking is monasticism, where people become monks or nuns and separate themselves as much as possible from the normal activities of this earthly life, spend as much of, time, of their time as possible on more spiritual pursuits. And a more evangelical form of this tendency is to consider full-time ministry to be a higher level of pleasing God than full time being a full-time mom, or a student of biology, or a plumber. Now, on the face of it, what Paul is saying in this passage seeks to support that vision of the Christian life. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. It seems that Paul here is describing a life of contemplation as opposed to a life of this worldly activity. This is an instance where it's easy to make huge mistakes by not taking the context into account. It's impossible to correctly interpret any passage in isolation from its immediate context, but also its broader context of the whole scripture. A couple of important points that come from the immediate context. In the verses that come before our text, Paul has condemned asceticism. Let me give you a definition of asceticism. It is a lifestyle characterized by few possessions or luxuries, it is an attempt to focus one's life on religious or spiritual matters and not to be distracted by the things of the world. Whatever Paul means by setting your mind on things above and not on the things that are on earth, he does not mean asceticism. He's not advocating a view of the Christian life that denies the significance of this earthly life for living to the glory of god there is an important place for self-denial and self-control and such things but that is not incompatible with seeing this earthly life as being significant in our life with god another important contextual hint helps us to understand what paul means when he tells Christians to set their minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth, is his use of the word earthly in verse 5 of the same chapter. There he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he talks about sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and a number of other sins. Here, earthly means sinful. In the light of that, it's clear that when Paul teaches the Colossians not to set their minds on things that are on the earth, He's speaking about sinful things, things that are on the earth in this context means sinful things and not the proper engagement of this earthly life. A third important contextual matter that helps us to understand what Paul means when he tells us to set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth is that he is what he deals with in the rest of the letter. He tells the Christians after he tells them to to set their minds on things above and not on the things of the earth. He tells them to deal with sin in their lives, put to death sin in their lives. Then he tells them to embrace all kinds of behaviors and attitudes in their lives, things like compassionate hearts, bearing with one another, loving one another. In verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Later on, he deals with worship, but also with marriage and parenting and obeying earthly masters and masters treating their servants justly and fairly. He calls them to prayer for his missionary work, but also to walk in wisdom and to make the best use of the time. Clearly, when Paul tells us to set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth, he does not mean That Christians should minimize the significance of this earthly life and think as little as possible about it. The things that he goes on to talk about are all about living this earthly life to the glory of God. So, what then does Paul mean by this exhortation? Let's consider it closely. Since they have been raised with Christ, they are to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2 says basically the same thing. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. What exactly is Paul telling us to do? Well, he's telling us to, set, to seek and to set our minds on heavenly things. And he makes a point of saying that Christ is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. The things that are above are to be sought, and we are to set our minds on them, because that's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The most significant thing about the things that are above is that that is where Christ is and the fact that he is seated at the right hand of God. And so seeking the things that are above is to think about life in the light of these heavenly realities, especially the fact <clears throat> that Christ is in heaven sitting at God's right hand. And the significance of Christ sitting, uh, being in heaven and sitting at God's right hand is that he has won the victory over sin and death. He is ruling all things in heaven on earth with the goal of bringing about the fullness of the kingdom of God. So the point of setting their minds on things that are above is not simply to contemplate the things that are above, but to look at their lives and all of life from the perspective of, of the fact that Christ is in heaven ruling over all things until he has destroyed all his enemies. And the rest of the letter demonstrates the way of life that is to result from seeking the things that are above and setting their minds on the things that are above and not on things that are on earth. And it is important to remind ourselves that the reason we are to seek the things that are above and to set our minds on things that are above is that we have been raised with Christ. We have died with Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, we will also appear with him in glory. Because all these things are true, we are to think of this life <clears throat> from the perspective of these heavenly things. Jesus on the throne, ruling all things as he works out the implications of his victory in the lives of his people, in the building of the church, and toward the renewal of all things. Here's how Douglas Moo puts it in his commentary on this passage. He said, Paul is saying, quote, that they are to seek to orient themselves totally to these heavenly realities. We are not to strive for a heavenly status since that has already been given to us in Christ. Rather, we are to make that heavenly status the guidepost of all our thinking and acting. Believers seek the things above by deliberately and daily committing themselves to the values of the heavenly kingdom and living out of those values. So we are to remember what is true of us in Christ, and we are further to know that because of all that is true of us in Christ, we are to think deeply about life in this world, in the light of Christ and the fact that he is ruling over all toward the fullness of the kingdom of God. And the result of that thinking is to be putting sin to death and living a life of love and compassion and worship and doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and having good marriages and obedient children and people who do their daily work heartily as unto the Lord and not for men. What is actually commanded here is to seek and to set your minds on things above. The word seek implies effort. Think of the parable of the woman who had ten silver coins and she lost one of them. She seeks diligently until... She finds that you seek something because it is valuable, because it is important to you. Paul is telling us that on the basis of all these wonderful things that are true of us in Christ, we must seek the things that are above. This is not some half-hearted endeavor. Seeking implies effort. And the call to, mo- to set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. that obviously has to do with our minds, with our thinking, with our thought life. But this is never simply intellectual in the Bible. Mind and heart go together. Truth and love go together. And so are thinking and doing. And that's clear from the practical exhortations that follow here. But the life of the mind is important. It's clear from the progression of thought in this passage. As he gears up to give the church a whole bunch of practical exhortations, he tells the Colossians first to set their minds on things above. Do you think deeply about life from the perspective of heaven, from the perspective of Christ, <clears throat> who he is, what he has done, what he's doing, what he's going to do? And he's telling us to do that thinking in the light of the fact that we have been raised with Christ, died with Christ, and will appear with him in glory. We're to think deeply about who we are in Christ. We are to think deeply about life in the light of Christ. That encompasses the big picture of the plan of God in Christ. And it involves our embeddedness in that plan because of our relationship with Christ. And so it remains for us to think about what we think about. What do we think about? What occupies our minds? What do we seek? Where does the effort in our thinking go? Are we thinking about things of earth in the light of heaven, or do we just think about the things of earth all by themselves? Are we thinking about life with God and in the light of his kingdom? Or are we just thinking about life on this earth? Paul is saying here that our thoughts must be consistent with who we are in Christ. If we have been raised with Christ, if we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God, if we are going to appear with Christ in glory... Let us think about things that are consistent with those glorious realities. That's Paul's point in these verses. May our thoughts reflect the reality of who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Our glorious God... It is overwhelming to consider the greatness, your greatness, but also the greatness of what you give to us in salvation, in our relationship with Christ. And we're grateful that the Apostle Paul was so passionate about teaching that to us, as he is in these verses that we have looked at. And we know that that means that you are passionate about us knowing these truths and understanding ourselves in the light of them and feeling the call that comes from the reality that is true of us, that we are alive, that we've been risen with Christ, that we are dead with Christ, that our lives are hidden with God in Christ, and that when he appears we will appear with him in glory. Lord, help us. Help us to to ponder those things so that our whole being is permeated with this truth, these wonderful truths, our whole sense of, of who we are. That we are profoundly affected in our thinking by these truths. And that we may indeed do what we're called to do on the basis of them. To set our minds on things that are above. To seek the things above where Christ is. Lord, what a glorious reality that we are Perceiving then, when we seek the things that are above where Christ is. When we see everything else in the light of that. What a glorious way of looking at the world. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the evil, and what so often looks so hopeless. Help us, we pray to live in the light of these glorious truths and to think accordingly, to use our minds in ways that are consistent with the realities that are true of every believer. Help us to live out of that fullness in Jesus' name. Amen.